When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went to, up to Elisha and asked him, do you, know what the, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped, at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elijah replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is, arresting on, is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Thank you, Stephanie. Part of the joy that I have from time to time is um, taking my little rascal grandson to a, one of his favorite... Um, play areas, one of his parks, by the way, which is where we had um, the Shavuot festival last Sunday, and part of the routine is that he takes a wad of weaponry, um, he has a couple of swords, a couple of pistols, um, lightsabers, and he distributes them very... Uh, carefully to those that seem to capture his favor and then he leads them by saying follow me men <laughs> and there's a little hill up there and you almost get the impression of him being a uh, Teddy Roosevelt charging up uh, the hill in San Juan but uh, it's quite quite uh, entertaining until he gets into some kind of trouble with somebody and then grandpa has to come riding and um, help deliver him. 
part of the picture from time to time is that I speak uh, with some of the fathers who come and bring their kids. And um, one Sunday there was a fellow who came and uh, we introduced each other and started to talk and he had a couple of adoptive kids and he was a techie like a lot of folks in the area there. And uh, he apparently was in Israel, and that was a point of, what, when he found out that I'm from Israel, he talked about how that he had spent some time in Israel. And then we talked about education and how um, education for um, kids in the area has become a real challenge because there are not enough schools. And so he just let fly the fact that he and his partner have really been struggling over that. And I thought to myself, okay, uh, we're looking at daddy and father uh, situation here. And I just felt led to, to listen to him. He apparently was a man who saw himself as spiritual. And uh, I imagine you have been noticing that in the media, homosexuality has gotten a whole lot of uh, publicity uh, with President uh, Obama and here in Denver with the um, so-called civil marriage uh, issue. And it's important for us to step back periodically and, and notice several things about all of this. Um, first of all, the fact that homosexuality is not the ultimate sin. The ultimate sin is the rejection of Yeshua. We need to be real clear about that. Um, sometimes we are repulsed. I'm repulsed by, by the homosexual lifestyle. I worked in, in a lab before I came into the ministry that dealt with um, AIDS. Obviously, homosexuality is a gross violation of God's commandments, but it's part of a much broader um, set of symptoms that indicate that we're living in a spiritually sick society, a society that is becoming increasingly godless. And there, there are several things that have come to my mind that I just wanted to share with you that highlight that. Um, at Isaiah School, I met a, a Jewish fellow, uh, also a father, and we got to talking and um, found out that he was Jewish, I'm Jewish, and so on, and asked him where he participated um, as far as a spiritual connection, and he said, I'm part of a group called Judaism as you like it. Folks, there really is a synagogue by that name in the Cherry Creek area. And I checked them out, and, and I, was, I was intrigued, but I was also uh, distressed simply because it, it is the spirit of the age in which we live in that what defines morality, what defines life, is the way we like it. 
Um, I also listened to a, a clip by a gal who is the adventure rabbi in Boulder, and she talked about her book, and one of the things she mentioned is, quote, we are not into an interventionist God. Uh, I thought, okay, what do you mean by that? Well, what she meant by that is that God is everywhere. God is in the trees. God is in the carpet. God is in the mountains. Uh, God is in us. And he doesn't flex his muscles and come and mess up our lives. Here's another example of what I'm talking about. Within about a quarter mile from where we live, there are three pot shops. Excuse me. Uh, medical marijuana, uh, including, including a very uh, tame sign such as, quote, the hippie shack. And I thought, you know, how do you function in a godless society? And there are a whole bunch of different approaches to it. You know, sometimes believers... Uh, talk about the fact that the United States is sliding into the abyss, that God is going to come and bring judgment, or that persecution is coming. My response is simply, perhaps, I'm not God. I see signs that are distressing. However, the last time I checked, the Lord hasn't brought me into a close awareness of His plans and purposes for what and how he wants to deal with the United States. Really more to the point, as you read Yeshua's teaching, what he says is, this and this and this and this will happen, but in the, me in the midst of all that, I want you to be faithful in serving your master. That's the bottom line, folks. Things will happen, but how do you continue to serve the master? And one of the things that happens is that we become claustrophobic because society is getting goofy and godless and mishuggy. then we start to feel as if we've been painted into a corner and if we feel that way we will act that way and the passage we're going to be looking at tells us that God is very much an interventionist God and what we see in the life of Elijah and Elisha during a time of gross apostasy is a challenge to us to shed our fear, fearfulness and to learn to, to depend on God and, and draw our strength from Him and do what He puts before us. So I want to pray for a moment and just ask to, that the Lord would speak to us. Father God, we see the signs of the times and yes, they are distressing. We see godlessness. But we first of all want to see you. Lord God, I pray for each of us that you will give us holy chutzpah, holy boldness, Lord God, like you gave to Elijah and Elisha. Lord God, that we would be strong men and women of God, equipped mobilized by your Ruach, Lord God, to serve you in a godless society. Lord God, we pray that you would speak to us, cause us, Lord, to be challenged, to be stirred, to be provoked, 
and to be empowered by your spirit to fulfill the commission to be faithful in where you have put us. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. How do you function in the midst of Baal country, Baal country? Just to bring you up to speed, if you're not familiar with the story of Elijah and Elisha, here you see that Elisha, which means basically God is my salvation, is preparing to step into Elijah's shoes at a time when Israel must have looked like a river full of crocodiles. The situation was grim. Um, Ahab, at this point, had just died. And Ahab, just by himself, without Mama Jezebel, was called, was considered to be the worst king that ever lived up to that point. Israel was bad enough before he came on the scene. Um, you, you may remember um, Jeroboam who established the worship of two golden calves, one in the north of the country in a place called Dan, Dan, and one in Bethel in the Judean hills because he said, you know, I don't want people to come down to Jerusalem. If they come down to Jerusalem, they will not only worship God, they would also come away from me, and that's not good. So we'll have a new system of religion. So that had been going on for a couple of hundred years. And Ahab comes on the scene, and the worst thing that he does is marrying Jezebel. Yes, he was responsible, but Jezebel brought with her a whole polluted, defiled way of worshiping Baal, who was, by the way, the Papa God for the Canaanites and just about everybody else around. They had different Baalim, different versions of, of, that, um, of that God who was considered to be the God of the storm, the God of rain, and the Mama God, Asherah, who's called in Greek Ashtarti, um, was the goddess of fertility and they had all these disgusting fertility rites along with the so-called sacred prostitutes that were part of the worship of her and so the worship of these two false deities was supposed to bring fertility to a largely agricultural society you can understand you know if you're a farmer and things are not going well, and uh, you have drought, then, then you look for answers. And by the way, what you find in Israel is you rarely have people totally godless in the sense of wanting to have nothing to do with the God of Israel, with Adonai. What they typically wanted to do is what is called syncretism, which means Yes, God, I will go to the temple, but yes, I will have my household gods uh, to sort of cover all bases. And by the way, archaeologists have found these shrines, the, the, these uh, statues, within spitting distance of the temple in Jerusalem. 
And by the way, you see that even with rotten to the core, miserable Baal worshiping Ahab, he gives his sons two names that honor God of Israel. The first one is Ahaziahu, the Lord grasps. The other one is Yehoram, the Lord is exalted. And periodically when things were going real bad for uh, Ahab, he would listen to the counsel that was given to him through God's prophets. Syncretism, you know, sort of a goulash. Um, yes, I will follow Ahab, uh, I will follow Baal, uh, because that's my wife's God, and, and I better listen to her or else things will not be good at home. Um, seriously, he worshipped Baal for his own reasons. But also, when push comes to shove, if, if it looks like Baal isn't coming through, then I'll go to the God of Israel. Very much a human kind of a uh, perspective, which we all struggle with, and it simply is God plus, Yeshua plus. It's never a radical God only, God alone, but it's God plus. We'll talk more about that later. Part of the picture here, as Elisha is preparing, is that you have a whole mess of false prophets. And Israel is a tiny little country, folks. It can fit about three or four times in Colorado. And if you have hundreds of false prophets, you can imagine the volume of false messages that are being put out by these guys at their master's whim. You know, sometimes when you read the prophets, Jeremiah and, and so on, it is mind-boggling um, how the word of God was perverted. You know, the king wanted something good to be said, so they would jump on the, the false prophet who would put out a word saying, this is what God is saying. Well, it was not. So that was part of Baal country. Uh, the false worship of the golden calves that went back hundreds of years, the relatively new one of Baal, Baal, and, and Asherah. And the mixture of all that with periodical, periodic reference to God, the God of Israel. And Elisha is getting ready to step into this. Now, I don't know how you'd feel. Uh, those would be awfully big shoes. If you read the life of Elijah, you see how incredible kind of power God delivered through Elijah in the midst of a totally corrupt, a totally depraved kind of society. Where if you were one of the prophets, you could die. That's one of the things that Jezebel did, is she sent out and killed a whole bunch of false prof uh, a whole bunch of prophets. And by the way, there was something that was taking place in the midst of all of that. God had raised up these schools of the prophets. Your, tr your translation may have it as the sons of the prophets. Basically, what it was was prophecy schools that. Um, 
some of the major prophets, such as Elijah, gave leadership and mentoring discipleship to these guys to teach them how to serve God and how to convey the word of God. And by the way, when you think of prophets, we th typically think of the um, stereotypic, this is what God is saying, uh, in two days such and such will happen. Well, remember that Isaiah and Jeremiah and these guys prophesied 40, 50, 60 years, and a lot of it was speaking the word of God based on the Torah and based on what God, God had given them. It wasn't necessarily predictive. It was simply, this is what God wants, and you better follow. So these sons of, of the prophets, these prophecy schools were all about that. And Elijah, then later on with Elisha, a major part of their ministry was to cultivate those schools of the prophets. You know, we read about Elijah and, and saying there will not be any rain and so on and so forth. And yes, he did that. But a big part of his ministry was the day-to-day -day kind of taking care of these sons of the prophets. And yes, he did spectacular things. I mean, you know, you read the story of God pouring out rain on Mount Carmel, it, it, it is mind-boggling. You know, the fire coming down from heaven, and then Elijah tucking in his outer robes and running a marathon, ab about the distance of a marathon, about 20 miles ahead of the chariot. Think about the physical and mental energy that was involved in doing that. Quite a guy. So he did a lot of these amazing things, but he also did a lot of this basic nuts and bolts, seeking to raise up sons of prophets in the midst of Baal country. And what that all goes to, to, to show you, in the midst of Baalism, in the midst of this unbelievably apostate, godless kind of a society, God somehow saw fit to demonstrate the fact that he, not Baal, not Baal, was the one who had control. I don't know if you catch the fact that if Baal was the god of the storm and the god of the rain, God makes it real clear who is the boss by shutting off the rain spout. Makes it real clear. Okay, you guys worship Baal, but it just so happens that I'm bigger than Baal. And everything, as you read these accounts, look for things that have to do with storms and rain that God brings about because that simply tells you that God is flexing his muscles and showing these people, clueless, spiritually clueless people, who is the boss. And of course we know that Elijah was depressed God, no one else is following you. I'm the only true blue and et cetera, et cetera. What does God say to him? Okay, bail out, Elijah. Um, you've earned it. You've worked hard. No, the Lord says, go back. Go back into this godless environment and raise up people who will take over, particularly Elisha. 
What that goes to show you, folks, is that in the middle, in the midst of godlessness, God's plans continue. He is well aware of what's going on because his cameras are panning the entire situation. He is always at work, often behind the scenes where we have no clue that he's working. But he's always at work. And at his time, his moed, he rolls up the sleeves and works visibly in one form or another. And by the way, God rarely raises people who are giants. We think of them as giants. We think of Elijah as someone who is big, bold, red, you know, who could come up to Ahab and get in his face. The truth, James tells us, chapter 5, is Elijah was a man just like us. Somehow the Spirit of God came on him and, and energized him and drove him to do what he was supposed to do. And now Elijah's turn is, <clears throat> is done. And <coughs> excuse me, God is about to take him in a whirlwind. <clears throat> By the way, did you catch that? How is Elijah going to come up? He's not going to die in his sleep. He's going to be taken in a storm. Storm, thunder, rain. Who is bigger here, God or Baal? You see the connection? Look for, look for these little clues. He's about to take Elijah up in a storm. And this is a very bizarre scene because it looks like God is talking to Elijah and they go from place to place. And in this one place, Elijah says, okay, uh, I have some business to do and I need to get rid of you so you stay here. And Elisha says, as God lives and as you live, it ain't going to happen. I'm going to stay with you. They go to another place, same thing happens. They go to a third place, the same thing happens. And you probably want to scratch your head and say, okay, what's that about? Well, please understand that Elijah is not wanting to come to these places just on a whim. Well, let's see. We're in Gilgal. Um, it's kind of cloudy here. Let's go over to uh, Bethel, see what's cooking there. That's not part of the picture, folks. He's, as he has done throughout his life, he's getting instruction from God. He knows he's about to leave, and he knows that the disciples, the sons of the prophets, need to be encouraged, need to be strengthened. So he wants to go there and encourage them and strengthen them and say to them, you need to persevere because God is with you. The fact that I'm leaving doesn't mean that God is leaving. He wants to minister to them. He also wants to demonstrate to Elisha that God's business supersedes everything else. Let me say that again. God's business supersedes everything else. We have it backwards. 
My business supersedes everything else. What needs to happen with me is the big picture. And the Lord says, no, let's flip it over. You seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, and I will take care of your business. So Elijah is, is preparing to leave, and he knows it's going to be spectacular. And he's not interested in self-aggrandizement. He's not interested in, in people looking at him and saying, wow, what a cool cat this, this guy is. He's not interested in being taken up and, and then waving at everybody and saying, hello folks, do you see how cool I am? And he also knows that part of it is going to be very difficult for Elisha. So I believe that out of compassion for Elisha and out of humility, he says, you stay put. Elisha says, no, I've bird-dogged the work of God with you. I've walked with you. I'm not giving up at this point. I want to see what God is going to do with you. Difficult time. It's hard for us to understand to put ourselves in Elisha's shoes that when you walk with someone like, <coughs> like Elijah and you see God do these amazing things God bring down fire from heaven etc etc and then you're thrust on the stage okay Elisha your turn okay what do I do now? You can understand the, all that's running through his mind. Um, and when we see the company of prophets, the sons of the prophets coming to Elisha, saying, do you know that the Lord is coming to take your master from you? Elisha says, yes, I know. But be quiet. It's a very strong command. He's saying to them, hold your peace. I'm trying to deal with this stuff. Let me alone. Let me alone. I have to deal with my struggle here. And I need to see what God wants to do with Elijah. So don't talk to me. There are times for that, you know. They go from place to place. They end up at the Jordan River. And uh, they don't wade into the, into the river. Elijah, in his very shy mannerism, takes his cloak, rolls it up, probably something that looks like a rod, and smacks the water. And the water opens. You kind of get the impression that Elijah... For Elijah, this was just another day. No biggie. You don't see Elijah jumping back and forth saying, Whoa, God, that's real cool. He just does it. The water parts. And by the way, it is dry as a bone. And they walk through. Now where I want to park is the last few verses of the section that Stephanie read to us. Because I feel like it has often been 
taken and, and twisted to where people really don't get what is being said here. Verse 9, when they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what can I do for you before I'm taken from you. Again, the strong connection between these two. This is a, an Old Testament, a Tanakh example of what discipleship is about. When you learn to pour your life into the life of somebody else in order to see them grow into maturity in God and, and develop as men and women of, as a man or woman of God, just like Scripture says, the things that you've heard from me pass on to faithful men and women who then will be able to take and pass it on to others. This is, th that instruction played out here. Elijah was taught by God. He teaches Elisha who then will teach these others to do the same thing. Very close relationship between the two of them even though it doesn't describe it Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elijah said, you have asked a difficult thing, but if you can see me when I'm taken, it will be yours, otherwise not. Now what on earth does Elijah mean when he says, I want a double portion of your spirit? And one of the common ways that this has been misinterpreted is... Elijah, Elisha saying, you were hot commodity. I want to be twice as hot a commodity as you are. And people then look at all the miracles that Elisha performed. They count them up and they say, look, uh, Elisha performed twice as many miracles as Elijah. Therefore, he had twice as much of the Holy Spirit in him. I really, really, really don't believe that that's what is being said here. It's a misunderstanding of the Torah that spoke about the law of firstborn. The son who was the firstborn was to receive a double portion of the father's inheritance. And Elijah, e Elisha is Elijah's number one son spiritually. And it's right and proper for him to say, Yes, Elijah, you have been working with these other guys, but I'm really your, your number one son, and so I would like to have a double portion, just like the firstborn was supposed to receive it in, according to the Torah. There's another element here that may or may not be obvious. Elisha is saying, look, Elijah, there's absolutely no way that I can do what you did or what God wants me to do unless I have the, the right kind of portion of the Spirit of God upon me. I can't do the job. So I don't see that as arrogance. I see it as a sign of humility where he is saying, I need the Spirit of God to drive me. I see that as holy chutzpah. And I see the fact that God affirmed or confirmed that and said, yes, you're right. 
the work that I have given to Elisha to, to, to carry out has to be carried out. And if you were to make the connection between Elisha and yourself, which you may find difficult to do, because speaking for myself, I haven't taken the shawl and rolled it up and smacked the uh, South Platte or the Cherry Creek and have seen it uh, part. And yes, Elisha is mind-boggling his example, his story, his, the power of the Spirit upon him. But the, the truth is, we're all Elisha in one form or another when you think about it. And this is where folks have the toughest time getting their arms around the simple notion that the God who created you, the God who brought you into His kingdom, is the same God who has a plan for you and who has a call on your life, has a commission for you to carry out. And that the typical approach that we have when we say, ah, shucks, Lord, it's not me. I mean, it's, it's him or her or, or her or him, not me. That's false modesty, folks. It doesn't please the heart of God. The Lord wants holy chutzpah, the gutsy faith where you say, God, I know it's not about me. It's not about my weakness. It's not about my strength. You have given me an assignment in my life, more than one assignment. I want to carry out your assignment because your will, your plans have to be accomplished. Absolutely must be accomplished. When you get that, folks, then your life takes on a completely, a radically different kind of a perspective. You change from saying, what am I going to do? How am I going to get it done? What is my life going to be about? Am I going to make it? Am I not going to make it? Am I going to flop? Am I going to succeed? Are people going to think I'm cool? You go from that to a perspective that says, my life is all about God. He is called me to serve him. He has laid out a plan for me. It has to be carried out. It's a non-negotiable. And no, I cannot do it on my own strength. I'm absolutely incapable, totally impotent to do the work. Like Yeshua said, without me, you can do zip. He didn't say, without me, you can do 10% or 20%. Without me, you can do zip, nothing. So it's both and where you say, God has a plan. God has a commission. I want to do it. I cannot do it, God. Would you please empower me? Just like Elisha. Lord, give me what it is required to accomplish what you have in mind. I'm zealous for your plans and purpose. I believe that's what you see in Elisha. Gutsy faith. It was quite a, sp a spectacle here. You know, they're walking, talking, walking, talking, walking, talking. All of a sudden, <whistles> chariot of fire and horses appear. Uh, 
I don't know that any of us can get our arms around it. Even someone like Cecil B. Cecil, Cecil B. DeMille or um, the more current versions. Incredible. But I believe that Scripture wants us to park not on the spectacle, on the fact that the chariot and horses came and, and Elijah's taken up in what could, could have been a uh, tornado, a storm. Again, remember, who is the one who controls the storm? Not Baal, but God. And look at Elisha's reaction. My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now what on earth does that mean? Well, first of all, my father, my father. That's hopefully a, a no-brainer. And the chariots in those days were the heavy, heaviest part of the military. They were sort of like the tank corps. What he's saying is, the power of God, the power in Israel, was not in Ahab's or his son's army, but in, the in, in God who unleashed this power through, through Elisha. And by the way, he is not, this is not a, a one-time deal, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He's screaming out not just the one time, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. It's an ongoing thing for as long as, as the spectacle lasted. Can't really imagine what, what this was like. The deep emotion for Elisha to see his spiritual father being gone. How do you process all of that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I would do. I, I would want to go somewhere and chill out. You know, go to the mountains and sit down and, and try to process what just happened? And uh, what did God do? And what did I do? And what is, uh, what is supposed to happen? And what am I going to do next? And all of that. What grabs me is the fact that Elijah doesn't do any of that. He has, he has a sense of purpose. He knows that God has selected him to be the successor to Elijah. He steps up to the plate decisively. He picks up the cloak. And by the way, the cloak is not just a bunch of fiber. The cloak is the mantle of authority that was on Elijah. He picks it up, and, and that's a symbolic statement in which he says, I am going to be continuing the same kind of work, the same kind of ministry. And it's a very active, very active kind of a situation. He picked up, he went back, he stood, he took, he struck, he spoke, he struck. Just ongoing, boom, 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 boom. He's committed. He's committed. By the way, he strikes it once and then he strikes it again. 
But what really jumped out at me is that last statement. When he then looks and says, Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Hebrew is very emphatic. Like David was saying before, there are things in Hebrew that kind of give you these uh, nuances, these special, special emphasis that you don't get sometimes. But he's basically saying, where is the Lord? The Lord of Elijah. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. And I believe what he's saying is, Lord, you've been the God of Elijah. You've walked with him. Now, are you going to be doing the same thing with me? I agree with your commission. You have called me to be anointed. You have raised me up as a successor. I agree with it. I, and I'm absolutely dependent on you. And I need to hear from you. It's not, it's not my thing. It's got to be yours. It's hard for us to, to imagine the scenario here unless you use sanctified imagination Elisha hits the water talks to God hits the water again and boom the water opens up why? why did God do that? why, why, did, why did the Lord answer him? why did the Lord Repeat the same miracle that he did with with Elisha, with Elijah. Obviously, it was not to to um, give Elisha a big head, but at the same time, it was to raise him up and give him the spiritual authority he needed. By the way, authority scripturally means delegated power, power that God gives us to carry out the commission He has for us to do. It's not about us. The authority is not about us. When we forget that, we get into big heap trouble. We abuse it, perhaps, go to extremes with it, or else we do the aw shucks, man, no, not me, God. Elisha grabs it with both hands and God confirms it and says, you're right. And this is the principle we find throughout Scripture. God took a very timid man like Joshua and he exalted him in the sight of all Israel and they revered him all the days of his life. Why? So that... Joshua would have the authority that he would walk in that authority that people would see that and would follow. Again, it's not about Joshua. It's not about Elisha. It's about God. This, I just read to you from Joshua 4.14. Peter puts it this way. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. If you humble yourself... And, and you de- devote your life totally, totally to the Lord, He will raise you up. He will give you authority. 
to carry out what he's called you to do. And folks, you and I desperately need to understand that authority. We desperately need to learn to walk in that authority. Regardless of how we see ourselves, regardless of the title that we see attached to ourselves, each one of us has been commissioned by God. And we live in Baal country. Smacks us in the face every, every single day. It's all around us. How do you deal with that? You can either be defensive, you can be passive, or you learn to be radical in your faith. And part of the picture, folks, is that Baal country, and here I know I'm going to be switching from preaching to meddling, but remember that I have four fingers pointing at me. Baal country isn't just out there. Baal country is right here. Because when you stop and think and are honest with yourself, you'll realize that you and I have the tendency to elevate things above God in our life. Each one of us has at least one Baal that we tend to come back and worship from time to time and God has to smack us upside the head and say, knock it off. It can't be God plus Baal or Baal plus God. It has to be God, period. And we see the same fickleness in us as we see in the world, as we see in the children of Israel. Mary Malone was telling me about a book by Rabbi Khan who talked about 9-11 and how that after 9-11, immediately that that first few weeks, houses of worship were filled to the rim with people and how that sooner or later that just dropped off. Fickleness. Fickleness, that's how much we, we and our society care for who the Lord is. And God in this godless society demands that we would be radical in our faith. Radical to trust Him and trust Him alone. Radical in the sense of saying, Lord, you've commissioned me. I'm going to trust you that you will bring it about. That you will empower me, that you will direct me, that you will guide me, and that what you have in mind will be done. The writer of Hebrews tells us the Word of God is alive and actively powerful and sharper than two-edged sword. Look at the Word of God and see how it reflects what's in your heart. And I want to close with a few verses from one of the Psalms that from time to time just shows me who I am in relation to God. How absolutely rotten my heart is and how that I have Baal right here, not just out there. 
Would you please just listen as I read these verses to you? Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That's a radical statement, isn't it? Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure in the midst of Baal country and godlessness. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Despite all the things that I fetch about, my health, my job, my family, etc., etc., I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. How do you relate to that? What, what parts of this is Psalm 16? What parts of this can you take and embrace as reality for you? What parts do you struggle with? God values our honesty. And, and as we conclude the service with the time of worship, I just want to challenge you to, to think about these verses and say, Lord, where am I in relation to what your word is saying? Please stand and join me. we conclude the service. Lord God, we're ashamed, Lord, not only of the Baalism out there, but the Baalism right here in our hearts. And Lord, we want to learn to worship you alone, to have no other gods before us. And Lord God, we pray that where we struggle in embracing the truth of your word, we pray that your ruach, your spirit would challenge us to a radical faith. Lord God, to trust your word, to embrace your call on our life. to embrace the fact that you have all the power and all the strength that we need to carry out the commission you have for us. Lord God, increase our faith where our faith is wobbly. We pray, Lord God, that you would challenge us and replace fear with basic foundational bedrock trust in you, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that you would receive the honor and the glory in our lives, in us, and then as a result through us. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.